All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Watchtower May webinar, excuse me, our June uh, webinar, uh, where we're going to discuss our threat hunting operations, our view of the cyber threat landscape and uh, observations from our threat intelligence and and what we saw come up over the last uh, over the last month. So what we decided to focus on for our clients uh, to keep them safe in a, in a proactive manner. So with that said, uh, I'm actually going to start just with a quick review uh, of what Watchtower is. Basically, we have a uh, with our telemetry, I'll talk about this in a bit, uh, but we are monitoring millions of endpoints. We're seeing new attacks as they emerge from across the globe. Uh, we're seeing new exploits, new campaigns. As we see these, our focus is to hunt for customer throughout our customer environments to see if these attacks exist, these new, these innovative, these uh, unique attacks uh, that we are monitoring to see if they exist anywhere within our customer environment so we can inform them launch into investigation and remediation actions. Some of the interesting things that we've seen uh, throughout June, uh, well, really, this is our hunting. The June Retro Tower report covers mainly what we hunted for throughout May and into June. But some of the interesting things that we saw, uh, we're gonna, of course, talk about the dark side ransomware attack and the, the, some of the backstory behind that. Uh, we also found some, a, a number of interesting campaigns targeting the airline industry. So we're gonna dive into that a bit. Uh, we probably won't have time to discuss in this webinar, but we found several new families and variations of malware being shared in the dark web. So we anticipate that they will uh, be adopted more and more and, and launched throughout our environment or throughout, uh, throughout the threat landscape. So we've already proactively taken measures to protect against those. Uh, a new campaign, we also spotted a new campaign, not so much targeting Citrix servers, but using them as a framework for post-exploitation. So um, if an attacker was able to get a leverage point uh, into a Citrix environment, that was seen as a primary uh, vantage point to jump to the next stage of their attack. So that's something we were very aware of and hunted for any activity along those lines. Uh, also, Royal Road, a, a weaponizer being used by uh, an RTF weaponizer, what we probably will have some time to discuss today, being used to target uh, a number of different uh, groups, mainly out in Asia, or uh, industries out in Asia, military, government, uh, oil and gas, education, maritime industries, all being targeted by uh, a number of different APT groups using the same technique. So we're gonna dive into that a little bit as well. Uh, so that is uh, that was a bit of what we talked about during June. I'm going to talk just a bit about threat intelligence first, though, because to me, threat intelligence is the first element that we need before we can do threat hunting. Uh, cyber capabilities seem to build on top of each other. Uh, having a, a 24 7 capability to do uh, a basic analysis, respond to containment is step one. But being able to pull information from that, well, and then step two is being able to do a deep dive forensic investigation, a, you know, a defer capability, malware reverse engineering, being able to use some of these elite skill sets to really dig deep and understand an attack would be step two. But then be able the ability to draw from these activities, from your MDR, for excuse me, for us it's MDR, from your SOC, perhaps if you're at your own organization doing this, um, but be, being able to take your own telemetry and translate that into uh, intelligence and, and the same thing, a deeper investigation, translating that into intelligence 
is the next step in the maturity. And finally, leading towards a threat hunting, and that's translating that threat intelligence into proactive hunting measures to keep your environment safe. So that, that's what we do here at Sentinel One. Uh, and this, you know, this is just a, a glimpse of what the threat landscape may look like. You know, this is what our threat intelligence groups need to be focused on. All of these different threat actors, you know, there's, a, there's this constant underground cyber war going on between both uh, Western or not just Western, just legitimate economies and, uh, and, and threat actors. And they may be, they may be nation state threat actors. They may be cyber criminal threat actors. They may be hacktivists. They may be insider threats. You know, this is constantly ongoing and it is the job of your threat intelligence organization to have an understanding of your own personal threat, your own organization's threat uh, profile and really seeing how it relates to the larger threat landscape. So this is kind of an example of what that might look like. And really, as we dig in, right, each individual, I guess, threat group, be that, uh, be that classified as a nation state threat or a, a hacktivist, or not hacktivist, a cyber criminal group like Carbonac, they all have their own techniques, their own campaigns. And it's important to be able to draw out uh, what they're doing and how they're doing, because this is how we base our act, our actions, our response. So, you know, for example, this could be IOCs, and that's domains and hashes, IPs, things like that. And now, this is while valuable, we have to understand that the time time value of these items is relatively limited. So, while I am interested to know what uh, domains and hashes and IPs, things like that, may be involved in a given attack, uh, in the Watchtower report, if you're able to read the June report, I equated this to hunting a serial killer. Now, what I mean by that is, is it important to know where a murder was uh, committed? Yes, absolutely, it's important. But it's limited value that's gonna give you from a predictive sense to understand where the next attack, where the next murder may happen. There's some value, you can triangulate locations and have an idea of where to focus, but it's again, of, of limited value. Now, translate that to TTPs, which is really where we're gonna be focused on. And that's understanding behavioral characteristics. What software is used? How do they use it? What are their, what is the entire kill chain of, of a new campaign or a new threat actor? These are things that are going to stand the test of time much better than any atomic IOC does. So a, a hash or a, a domain can change in a minute. Whereas, a, a well-understood modus operandi of a given threat actor, and especially within the same campaign, is going to stay static throughout. And these are the areas where we want to focus our hunting on. Now, not to say we won't hunt for a hash or, or a domain. I mean, that's not really, I don't classify that as hunting, more of just searching for a known parameter. Um, but yes, that we, we will do that, especially, you know, you take something like WannaCry, right? It's a major campaign that, that launches, and we see it starting in Eastern Europe and spreading throughout Western and into the US and all throughout the globe. In real time, real time response, that first 24 hours, proactively hunting for hashes and blocking hashes is important, domains, all of that kind of thing. But for a longer term, more effective hunting strategy, that's where we need to work, focus more on behavioral characteristics, TTPs. And part of our threat intelligence, our duty as threat intelligence, is to track active threat actors and understanding what they're doing and how they're doing it so that we can apply it for our hunting. So a, a bit about the intelligence cycle. 
And this is something I discussed in the uh, the reflections section of the June Watchtower Report. So I invite you all, if you haven't read it yet, take a look. Um, read it. It's in the first five or six pages to understand our point of view on operational threat intelligence. So there's a lot of different things that that you know elements branches of the threat intelligence tree. Uh, one branch, of course, being that attribution and understanding. Another one being tracking code reuse, for example. Um, so if we see different families of malware being created and uh, um, you know tracking across all these different variations to track back to an uh, individual family or even a potential threat actor. But the threat from an operational threat intelligence perspective, this is looking at our own telemetry, our own visibility to identify new attacks, new campaigns, new trends, and that we can focus on uh, for, for hunting or at least understanding of what of what the threat actors are doing. Uh, now, this is very much can be equated to a government sponsored. If you're, you know, your CIA, your NSA, what you see in the picture below is U.S. Army Guide to Threat Intelligence. So these are potentially clandestine officers on on the ground, actually doing research, uh, human research, trying to identify what countries are up to, right, or what 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 our adversaries are doing, so that they can put the right information in the hands of our decision makers, um, be that the, the generals in command or the politicians in command, so they can take the right actions to keep our countries safe. Um, this is data, right? This is the raw intel that they're collecting from the ground. Now, when we start to add an understanding of how that data fits into all the other data we have from, from these sources, that becomes information. And when that gets enriched with an understanding of motivations and and um, who may be behind it? We, we're tracking back original actors and who else is associated. It becomes knowledge. And when we finally tie that in with how that affects the overall geopolitical events and, and what actions we should take as a country, that's that situational awareness and understanding. That's what we want to put in the hands of our decision makers. right? And that's the role of, of an intelligence organization. Now, when we translate that to to the cyber world, it's actually very similar, right? From our, from our vigilance MDR perspective, we're on millions of endpoints monitoring the newest attacks. We are researching within the dark web. We're doing hundreds of deeper investigations where we are identifying uh, new, new attacks. Each investigation is a source of threat intelligence and that threat intelligence feeds our hunting operations. So. As we take that raw intel from a DFER investigation or an MDR analysis or a, an observation from dark web activity, this is raw information. Now, when we extract from that information, the, the uh, excuse me, that was raw data, right, raw intel. And our job is now to curate and, and develop that intelligence into something that can improve the situational awareness of our clients and ourselves. So, Extracting from that raw information, IOCs, TTPs, and understanding the kill chain, understanding the, the entire attack, we're translating that into information. As we move that into associating with other IOCs, with other known campaigns, historical campaigns, we reach that knowledge stage. Now, when we finally are able to attribute that potentially to a known threat actor, or at least understand the motivation and where they're going to target, where they want to target, um, this is really giving us the information that we need that's going to empower decision-making. At the end of the day, network security is that, that uh, you know, the, the well is, is risk management, risk mitigation. That, that's what, what it is. You invest to mitigate your risk. So 
the classic uh, formula for risk is probability times impact equals risk. Having this kind of a professional threat intelligence operation is what gives you the ability to understand probability and impact so you can make informed decisions upon your own risk. So that's, that's what we do from an operational threat intelligence perspective. And when we think about that, it's key to me, right? That line, Intel feeds operations, operations feeds Intel. There needs to be a very clear, cohesive, um, and, and fast, very rapid relationship between intelligence organizations and your operations organizations. Because as we are, like I said, our, our vigilance MDR team, it's on millions of endpoints and they are generating an understanding of new attacks in real time. That needs to be fed into our, our intelligence team so they can do that deep dive forensic investigation or uh, understanding of malware, reverse engineering, and understanding of the attacks, basically taking that raw data and curating it into information and even situational awareness, right? That's, that's what their job is. And when we do that appropriately, we do start to understand an individual attackers' modus operandi. We, what, what are they doing? and how do they do it? Things that stand at the test of time, not atomic IOCs. We are able to enrich our understanding of, of the individual alerts with contextualization, how it, you know, how it matters with historical campaigns, what can be tied to these same attacks. And finally, it enables us to start to even, in some cases, predict future threats, taking it back to that serial killer uh, analogy. If we can actually predict where the next murder can take place, we can prevent it. And really, that's the goal of a good uh, threat intelligence organization. And with vigilance, with MDR, for us, um, in every every organization has their own telemetry and visibility, and it's important to use it. Sentinel One is a is an organization that is uniquely qualified because we are on millions of endpoints, and I I, I liken that to. Um, Canaries, we have millions of canaries in the coal mine, right? In the old, the old days, you go into the coal mine, if a canary died, you knew that the gas was leaking up from the, from the underground, it's time to get out. So that's what we have, right? We have all of these early warning systems throughout the world, across all geographies and all industries to warn us of when things are happening so we can immediately leverage that uh, into our threat intelligence cycle and to predict and to hunt. This leads into, so this is Watchtower, right? That's what Watchtower does in, in a nutshell. Um, where you hear from us will either be A, we have a finding and we need to talk about it and investigate, or B, um, you'll be reading about it in our, our monthly report, which we provide both in the AMBER, which is you know protected, very, it's more technical and has sensitive threat intelligence we wanna keep uh, private, but we will also receive the white version which is just the stories. And really that's what we try to provide in the Watchtower Report is yes, technical threat intelligence and technical analysis of real-time emerging threats happening on a monthly basis, but also providing a bit of a story. Who is behind these attacks? What is, the, what is their world like? And when we start to understand our adversaries and the world that they operate in, we start to understand better what we can do to prevent and defend, right? That's part of our, our mission uh, from the Watchtower perspective. And finally, before I hand it off to, um, to the guys for, for June case studies, I want to walk through um, what I mean, a case, an example of predictive threat intelligence. So in this case, um, this is talking about the Fortinet. We published on this in our May Watchtower report. And it started with MBR telemetry. 
So again, we're on millions of, uh, millions of endpoints. We're seeing new attacks in real time. So back in the end of March, we spotted a major spike uh, target of, of uh, attacks targeting Fortinet security devices. Based on that, we're able to do a deeper dive analysis and pull metrics from our own data. And you can see the heat map at the bottom. We're able to understand, we're able to pull the binaries, reverse engineer them to understand the attack, to develop static parameters that we can hunt for, uh, not just, again, not just uh, atomic IOCs. And we'll also understand what geographies are being hit, as you can see in the heat map, what industries are being specifically targeted. It gives us that wider understanding and context of an attack. We can translate that information, as we did by, by early April, into hunting, right? Now we're making these, these uh, queries that, again, are not going to change with IOC changes, but they're, they're targeted on behaviors. And we can launch these hunts. And again, as long as this campaign is active, we'll continually be launching these hunts to make sure that our clients are safe. From there, we can pivot into a bit of deeper dive research. And I know the font is too small to see, so please check out the Watchtower report to see it. But what we're talking about is spotting attackers out in the dark web, um, talking about Fortinet attacks, how they're going to leverage them, selling uh, access to Fortinet devices. 50, I think this was about 50 or 100,000 different credentials for, for various Fortinet devices being sold in the dark web. So we see the, the scope and volume of this campaign, and we get a better understanding of the individual attackers, what they're targeting, right? And, and, and sometimes why and how. All this is important to our research our hunt, and our hunting. This yields into early May when we published in our Watchtower report. And whenever we publish anything in our Watchtower report, you can rest assured that we've already hunted across all of our client environments. So we published about it, the deep dive understanding from the dark web, from the, from the individual attacks, from the malware reverse engineering and the queries we use to hunt for. You can see all of this in our Watchtower report. That was published on May 9. And then in May 27, that's when the FBI published a flash report saying, hey, everybody beware, Fortinet uh, devices are being targeted by APT groups. And by that time, you know, this for a lot of security organizations, this is the first they found out about this attack. But as you can see, we had already, I mean, this was this mirrored the research and analysis that we've been doing for the last month and a half. And that's how we become predictive. And we really do our best, if not being before it happens, certainly in real time as things are happening, launching our hunts and doing our uh, uh, keeping our clients safe. So, so that's an example of how threat intelligence operates within the context of threat hunting along with your operational security groups and how it all should work well together and how we do it at Sentinel One. So that was my intro. Uh, I wanna pass off to James Hogan, one of the top, uh, top items that we talked about from the June report was Darkside and the Colonial Pipeline attack. So James, go ahead. Hey, thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, thanks uh, all so much for joining. Uh, my name is James Hogan, I'm a security researcher here for the Vigilance Defer team. Um, and I get to play around with the Watchtower uh, folks as well. So um, as Brian said, I'm going to talk a bit about um, the Dark Side Ransomware campaign, uh, give some backstory, um, as well as some of the um, interesting events uh, around the Colonial Pipeline. Um, and then we'll close with um, sharing some details on how some of these um, uh, underground marketplaces and forums operate, because I think it's pretty fascinating. And um, I don't know if the knowledge is... Um, is uh, common uh, in the field. And then um, 
we'll close with um, sharing some of our findings um, regarding some of the dark side, um, dark side IRs that um, our team has actually worked on and investigated in the last uh, few months. So uh, let's go into the backstory here. So this, um, this ransomware gang has been active since uh, November 2020. And then obviously it was shut down as, as everybody's been reading uh, by uh, um, FBI. And I believe there were some other uh, internationally uh, international uh, law enforcement agencies involved in that takedown and seizure of their uh, of, rans of that ransomware gang's infrastructure. Uh, so their servers, um, Bitcoin, um, everything they need to, to operate. Um, so, you know, this has been, um, this has been sort of um, stated to be uh, one of the biggest and probably most notable ransomware events uh, as of late, you know, maybe since uh, WannaCry and, and Petya, perhaps. So um, we can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, so when this group came out and they sort of announced themselves, they had sort of like a coming to market. They were marking themselves as like similar to Revil group, uh, having some overlap um, um, with them, not necessarily as far as, um, as operators and affiliates, but maybe more so as like uh, what motivates them, which is money, obviously. Um, and uh, they're very clear about their goals. Their goal is to uh, target large organizations that can afford, pretty much can afford to pay the ransom. Uh, they say they do their, their research to ensure that. And um, they didn't stay true to this next promise necessarily. They're a state, they, they don't attack like public sector, nonprofits, medicine, so, you know, hospitals and whatnot, um, colleges, and then uh, funeral services. Um, and this is pretty interesting because this sort of, uh, sort of, you know, uh, displays a level of human, um, you know, that um, some, some may not think of when they think of like uh, ransomware gangs, you know, this is like pretty much like code of ethics or principles they live by, which is, well, said they live by, which is, it's pretty interesting. Um, so um, they also have this sort of like Robin Hood type of thing going on where they're actually, um, after they're paid out, they're actually donating like tens of thousands of dollars to nonprofits and uh, charities and whatnot, which is, which is pretty interesting. And I mean, they, I don't believe they can accept that money legally, um, just because of the way it was obtained. Um, but anyway, so then we'll start talking about uh, the pipeline itself, Colonial Pipeline, which, I mean, you know, was the largest uh, attack on oil infrastructure in American history, um, you know, caused a state of emergency. Um, Biden uh, uh, issued a state of emergency. The um, Georgia, they had a state of emergency, you know, so there was panic buying uh, in the U.S. on the East Coast. The airlines had to modify schedules. Um, you know, gas stations from, you know, between like South Carolina and, and DC, uh, many ran out of fuel in some parts of this region, like they say between 70 and 90% of gas stations actually completely ran out of, um, out of gas. So it's uh, pretty, uh, pretty bad, very, very much a disruption. On the right, you'll see a screenshot from our uh, Watchtower report. And this is basically just some of some of what I've, I've, I've mentioned here, uh, most notably that so their infrastructure was seized right around uh, May 13th, um, and you know the, the the attack itself came to light on May 7th, so it was very quick um, turnaround. And we'll um, talk more about that later. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so this is from a forum, and this is sort of the coming to market, as we say, um, for this group. And this they're kind of laying out, um, you know, what their product is. 
you know, what, who they will and will not target, you know, what their intent is. And then it gives their guarantees, you know, for uh, their victims, um, what they can expect, um, both if you agree to pay and refuse to pay. Um, so you kind of get an idea just um, about this from like a threat intel stand, um, stance, you know, get an idea of their policies and, you know, what, uh, what they sort of live by uh, and, you know, what, uh, what principles they operate uh, with. Next slide, please. So here's a, I want to share a quick screenshot of sort of the Robin Hood um, type of thing going on. Um, so these, uh, these screenshots are, um, they're showing, these are basically just receipts for donations that Darkseid made um, to uh, one of these, I forgot which is which one is a, um, one's a charity, another one's a nonprofit. And um, if you look, the amount is 0.88 Bitcoin, which comes out to about $10,000. So um, this is the way they're sort of um, uh, showing, you know, how they're sort of like doing the Robin Hood thing. They're taken from these large, um, large organizations and then uh, giving to uh, giving to these these nonprofits and these these charities that are uh, very much in need. Thank you. OK, so now we can talk a little bit about sort of the inner workings and what's kind of happening behind the scenes for the underground marketplace, which is which is pretty interesting. So. Um, um, so these marketplaces are a lot more like organized and structured and really they're actually like policed, uh, more than, uh, more than most people assume or really aware of, um, in my opinion. So, um, there's clear like rules and regulations for these forums and these are required by, um, by its users, um, whether you're, um, whether you are a uh, customer or if you're like a provider, for example, you're providing a service or a product for um, these forums or these marketplaces. And these forums, they, they truly do police their users, you know, their repercussions for, for, um, um, for breaking some of these uh, rules uh, or laws, if you will. And these are, this, this enforcing is actually done by the admins, which we'll uh, speak more uh, about later. There's tons of re repercussions there. Um, lastly, we have a, uh, what we're calling sort of a feature-driven model for a lot of, uh, a lot of these products and services. And when I say products and services, I can mean like a new strain of ransomware or selling access to a network or credentials or, or what have you. So, uh, the feature-driven part is, is pretty interesting and we can, we can dis discuss a bit more later. Uh, the screenshot right here is actually, um, another post by Darkside, and this is them actually, um, trying to recruit operators or affiliates, as they call them, um, you know, to to uh, gain access to networks, move around networks, deploy the ransomware, as well as um, simply um, um, sell access. So, um, pretty uh, pretty interesting stuff here. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so these screenshots are straight from uh, a forum, the XSS forum. Um, and um, basically, we wanted to give uh, a little, um, I want to give an example of how some of this self-policing goes on for the, um, for these uh, forums. Um, so this, this, this policing or enforcing it down here is actually by one of the group admins, which is pretty interesting. So what you're seeing here is a thread, a sort of back and forth. Um, this occurred right after the seizure of the, um, of the, the Bitcoin and servers of uh, Darkside. So this um, user QWERTY1 at the top is basically um, filing a, um, a claim or a complaint uh, saying they weren't paid. They did their job for Darkside and they weren't um, compensated for it. 
due to the seizure. Um, so uh, in response to that, we see uh, basically the admin for this forum acknowledging that um, and then uh, basically telling them the next steps to take in order for them to be compensated for what they've done. Um, basically, there's a deposit that's made by Darkseid or by these groups. Um, and then in situations like this, this is how um, the affiliates are, are reimbursed. We're not reimbursed, but compensated rather, which is um, pretty interesting. Um, uh, next slide, please. Yep, so here you can see a response later by the admin and this is um, them um, uh, basically stating that they are confirming the claim that was made so that the affiliate can be compensated. Uh, next slide, please. And then lastly, this is, this is just one example of some of the repercussions that these forums take. Um, so right here, we can see this is the dark side, um, um, dark side groups like user account, if you will, for, for this um, forum. And here they've been uh, banned and you can they even provide a reason for the ban in a, uh, they provide a thread ID there as well as like when the ban started. So some, some uh, pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting stuff to uh, look at. Um, so lastly, this is just a graph of um, victims of Darkseid, which is kind of interesting because there's obviously some very, very important, um, um, uh, very important um, industry here. Um, you know, even though they claim not to target like medicine, we do see healthcare and same thing with education. We see education uh, industry here being affected uh, as well as critical infrastructure and, you know, important stuff like energy and, and oil and whatnot. So another, um, Another interesting uh, statistic here. So next, um, this is the last section for dark side, and we are going to be talking about um, share, basically want to share some of our findings for um, an investigation we did into this group. Um, share some TTPs, some tools, um, and I, I hope you find it interesting. So um, these uh, these specific ones are um, result are, are uh, from an investigation we did for a very large uh, tech organization. Um, so this is just a breakdown uh, by Killer Chain. I won't read these all to you, but as you can see, we have uh, you know nothing nothing special here really. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, usual suspects, as we should say, uh, things that we'd expect. Nothing super advanced. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of the publicly available tools. You know, AD Fine and Bloodhound. These are things we see in, in many many IRs. Um, and then you know usage of what's already available in the network. Be that PS Exec. Uh, WMI, GPO, scheduled tasks. Um, and then we have exfiltration via Rclone, which is a, an open source uh, command line utility uh, used for copying files. Um, so let's dig in a little bit now. Uh, thank you. Okay, so um, let's start here uh, with some of the toolkit that we recovered. Uh, in the top left here, we have uh, wanted to share some details about the Active Directory enumeration, which is done uh, in this case with Bloodhound in AD Fine, so we were actually able to um, to identify some deleted Bloodhound uh, output files, some of the JSON and, and archives that are um, are that are uh, output by the tool. Um, and then um, uh, related to that, also we were able to find uh, usage of AD Fine in this uh, this forensic artifact here, which uh, they did not rename or anything. And this is the the one straight from the release page from uh, AD Fine's. Um, uh, website, forgot which, what it is, uh, Joe something. Um, so in the bottom left, you can see execution of a binary C window service host 
which is not the um, not the um, native service host, which we which we all see, uh, which is actually located in C, C Windows System 32. So this is this is a pretty nifty little trick here. This actually is our clone. Um, so this was a um, this was kind of sneaky of them uh, to throw that uh, here in the C Windows. Um, I don't know if many many like SOC analysts or even some IR guys may may uh, understand that when you know when ripping through a bunch of data. So pretty uh, pretty slick trick here. And then on the right, uh, we wanted to share an example of some of the lateral movement that we observed. This one being um, Cobalt Strike. Uh, this is actually the SMB beacon being used, which uh, pretty much just um, opens up a, uh, a named pipe. And then this named pipe acts sort of as a, a listener for a parent beacon to then send, uh, send an additional payload to, um, which is usually just a full beacon so that they have you know, full code execution um, on that box as well. Um, all of this is in memory. And uh, as you can see, this is actually running in the context of PowerShell. So it's the uh, PowerShell, PowerShell stager, uh, if anybody's familiar with, um, with this framework. Um, and on the right, you're seeing uh, basically a blob of shell code that we extracted out of memory. Um, and um, this is, you know, not, wasn't, wasn't custom or anything like that. It was straight out of uh, what Cobalt Strike ships with. Um, and then the named pipe that's being opened, um, as, as you can see in the, the bottom, uh, more horizontally um, shaped sort of a screenshot there. This is the named pipe, uh, the, an active handle to it rather, uh, being opened still when we did that uh, live memory capture. So this was a, a good find. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so lastly for the toolkit, I wanted to share a little bit more, this time about how the ransomware is deployed. Um, this is always interesting. Um, so in this case, it was a, uh, there are actually a lot of components involved, um, almost a little overcomplicated. So we have uh, basically this base process tree you see in the top left, which is uh, WMI spawning PSExec. Okay. And then you can see below that um, the PSExec service, which is what's running on the um, server, if you will, or what's the, the box being pretty much remoted into. Um, and that's invoking run.bat. So run.bat does a few things, and that's uh, this preview in the bottom left. Um, these are the contents of run.bat. Um, so as you can see, it's making some registry modifications, um, which is basically um, creating, um, um, disabling some, some of the detection capabilities of Windows Defender, which this client was using at the time. Um, and then uh, we can, you know, we basically see some exclusions being made. And then finally, we see uh, run DLL executing a, uh, a DLL, of course, and um, invoking the, the number one ordinal from it. So it's export, it's, it's invoking one of the, one of the, uh, one of the specified exported functions uh, from this DLL in order to invoke the ransomware payload. Um, so how we get to this point is in the top right. So if you'll look over there with me. Um, we have a PowerShell command line here, which, uh, which we were able to recover. Um, we had to redact some of this information, um, as, as you can see. Uh, but basically what, it's, what this is running, it's running a, uh, a PowerShell script that um, reads, in, um, reads in a file, uh, which is actually just going to be a list of endpoints on the local network to um, connect to so that it can then um, uh, execute code on each one of those. Um, so in this, the list here in this case was all that text. And um, as you can see, like part of this command line, which has been redacted is an actual account 
and password to that account in order to authenticate to all these machines throughout the network, you know, indicating that this has to be a privileged account like uh, so, you know, so you can, you can uh, deploy the ransomware literally everywhere. Um, and then uh, the, the, app, the programs being executed here are going to be psexec um, dropped with the DLL and then the run.bat. Which, which, we, which we see here again in the bottom left. So um, in the screenshot below where you see this WMI method args, I just wanted to, to give uh, everybody an idea of what this looks like at the code level um, for actually invoking those, uh, this WI method um, using an instance of the Win32 process class. Um, so nothing, again, nothing, it's, it's interesting to see, but um, nothing like groundbreaking here. Um, Sort of the sort of, sort of the usual suspects, and then if we look uh, in the bottom right, we can see those actual ransomware components. Um, so this is what you would expect to see on any affected device, any device that actually um, had the ransomware successfully execute on it and uh, become encrypted. Unfortunately, so that's the run.bat, the DLL which contains the ransomware payload, and then psexec. And then as you can see, this this one did run successfully as we have a README uh, right there below it. And uh, that's it for our um, for our findings right now. Thank you. Yeah, James, that's that's great. And let me just say, I think it's um, from my perspective, I, I love the poetic justice of of a major ransomware group being taken down, so they no longer have access to their data. So the FBI moved in very quickly. They no longer have access to the data. They they sacrificed the. Well, I forget exactly how many twenty in Bitcoin. I mean, it was eight nine hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin that they had to sacrifice as their deposit because they didn't have access to their data. And I mean, the, the uh, a ransomware organization that that's their business model is taking away people's access to their data. And to see the tables turn like that um, is is very satisfying, at least from my point of view. I'll say that. Um, now, what I, I, I found it really interesting as well that the, you know, just hearing you talk about how these criminal organizations, they police themselves, they ensure to ensure that they, you know, these affiliates, these the ransomware groups, they hire affiliates to hack into other organizations so they can hand over these pre-hacked sites that these guys can infect with ransomware. It's all very, works together very, very smoothly. And it just, it's hard to understand. It's, well, it's hard to believe how mature and uh, sophisticated this economy is, this underground economy that's going on under our noses at all times. So we, we, we talked about, you talked about how they police themselves to ensure that their affiliates are actually paid. Uh, what else, what, what other, I, I'm just curious, well, well, what else is there that, um, that, that, that really indicates the maturity of these organizations from a, from like a traditional economic business perspective? What, what, what else are they doing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I think it's really, really interesting, actually. Um, you know, uh, it's, it sort of it looks a lot like, um, you know, like Amazon, Etsy and eBay, where you um, as a, as a, um, as a business owner, or as a, you know, a, a service provider, as some of these, um, some of these guys are, um, you know, you, you're, you rely heavily on like, um, on, on reviews, and um, and the reputation. So I mean, obviously, if if your account is banned and you're and you lose your deposit, it's not it doesn't look good for your business, right? So like we saw with Darkside. Um, so you know, in addition to that, we see um, it's it's really interesting how how they will also uh, have um, 
all the different uh, features, right? So like guarantee, there's money money back guarantee, right? For, for these products, um, 24 seven help, right? There's support. So if you buy, let's say I'm a malware developer and I have a rat for sale and for some reason it's not connecting back to C2, then I, I can provide, provide like live chat support to you to help you troubleshoot it and then get that deployed. So there's like, there's serious sophistication and it's, it's, it's very, it's super interesting. Um, and you know, um, there's also like, I think areas of specialization, uh, feature requests. So, you know, if, if the rat isn't doing, uh, it doesn't have a certain capability that you want, maybe you want it to dump LSAS or you want it to load additional modules in memory or something like that. In addition to that, you also have guarantees like um, that you'll see when you see these um, these advertisements um, on these forums, you know, guaranteed to bypass this EDR, guaranteed to bypass this AV, which is also uh, which is also very, uh, very interesting. Um, I think lastly, what's what's important with these repercussions are, you know, as we saw with Darkside, like 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 getting banned and, and losing a deposit. Uh, right. It's there's almost like a, um, a level of um, like. I guess, insurance or like a safety net uh, involved here, if you will. So it's, you know, it's, it's a legit marketplace. It's, it's, it's uh, it, it looks a lot more like Amazon than people think. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's how we buy things. You know, the, you earn trust via reviews from customers. That's, that's how I, when I go out, that's how I choose things. And I mean, the, this whole, the same model, you know, along with, chat support, 24 seven support, feature requests, all this stuff. It, this is all built into this criminal underground. It's, um, it, and in some cases it sounds more sophisticated than a lot of our big companies in, in legitimate economies. It's, it's crazy, it really is. Um, and it's hard to imagine. Um, you know, one other question I wanted to ask you as I was listening to you talk, uh, you know, it, 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 there's this major, major colonial pipeline attack that, that's impacting the lives of, of Americans. And uh, you know, it, it really shook our confidence. And, uh, and I think our own internal infrastructure really crossed a line. And, and then we saw literally less than a week later, the government took action um, you know, very quickly. I mean, in less than a week, they completely shut down all dark side services, their ability to access their own servers, their own, their finances, everything shut down in a, just like that. And it, you know, really, I think impressive act. Um, what do you think that that will do this feeling of invincibility that these ransomware threat actors seem to have, right? They're like, they, they're anonymous, they get millions of dollars. Um, you know, I think they are getting this, this feeling of like, nothing can touch them, but clearly we can. Um, what do you think this means? For me, I think this was sort of a like a power move or a statement by the government and the all the um, all the involved um, uh, agencies. Um, you know, so sort of to um, sort of deflect really and, and show what you know what what may happen if you do decide to sort of cross that line. Which you know, even in this, I think this is there's like this like unspoken rule there. Um, with like uh, ransomware versus uh, versus like the government. So on the ransomware side, we saw like Darkside and these other groups. They don't go after you know critical infrastructure. Sometimes like specific groups won't do that, or they avoid um, they avoid targeting some government organizations because you know like they want um, a lot of them are financially motivated and that's it. They don't want to uh, raise like political tensions or whatnot, right? Like there's been quotes before by these guys like we don't 
uh, we, we will not deploy our code here because we don't want to start another war pretty much. Right. So, um, I think that, um, this is also like, this can be looked at as a wake up call to, um, that may, uh, that, that may sort of, um, keep other ransomware gangs to as sort of like a copycat here. Um, at the same time, they had a, they, they, they got a payout fairly quickly. I think it was like $4 million. So, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta think what, um, when you, when you go after like a very, very, um, a critical, a critical asset, um, it's not like they're just losing, um, dollars, right? Like a tech organization, you're just, you slow down business and they're losing a lot of money. I mean, this, this actually, this disrupted society. So I think it was a whole nother, a whole nother level, a sort of line was crossed. And I think that's what prompted that response from, uh, from the government. So, um, the FBI, the NSA, you know, they, they're seeing these things happen. They're gathering more intelligence. They know more than we would even think they do, but when they take action, they do show their hand, right? And they may get some people in jail, but they're watching right now and they're knowing, and which is good, but that means the attacks are still happening. But mm-hmm. when they do show their hand and they take a decisive action like this, we have to understand now they, bad guys are likely to come back and you have to start all over to understand where they are, what their infrastructures are, start mapping it out. So they lose the advantage of their intel. But in some cases, I think severe cases like this, you just got to take the action. You know, the lines right. cross, like you said. Yeah, I, I think um, I think they're also sort of using the dark side, like they're showing, making an example out of them. Um, and now my question is what I'm interested in, like moving forward, um, did this happen only because this was critical infrastructure, you know, and in the, in the future, when these other big commercial um, organizations get hit, are they going to be, are they going to be helped in similar ways? Um, or is this strictly like a more like public sector, critical infrastructure type of, uh, you know, sort of reasoning behind uh, the reply there? Or is it, I mean, obviously ransomware um, is becoming, um, I guess it's so, you know, it's so hot right now and, and so many organizations are affected that also the government seems to be sort of, sort of uh, taking note um, of that and, and seems like they're wanting to uh, make moves. So now it's, that's my question is, will there be more moves like this in the future or is it strictly um, for this situation just because of, of the disruption and the threat so to, we, you know. We see where one line is. We see where one line in, in critical infrastructure but where else is that line? Is it in healthcare when people actually die? Is it in um, nuclear power plants? I assume, right? But you know what else? I mean, they could be hit. They could hit uh, traffic lights and cause major traffic jams that, that slow down the whole city. Where's the line? We know we know where part of the line is now. It's up to it's up to question where the rest of the line is. <laughs> All right, um, Naranjan uh, is going to speak to us about. The uh, airline industry targeted campaigns, we spotted a couple here in, in early 2021, really kind of spiking through the May timeframe. So um, go ahead, Naranjan, I'll pass to you. Thank you so much, Brian. So uh, we started looking into threats hitting specific industry and we started off with uh, pivoting through our data sets on threats, uh, possibly impersonating file names um, associated with CETA, which is the multinational information company, providing IT and telecommunication support and service to 90% of uh, air transport industry. So we looked into the CETA breach along with uh, Group IB research post, 
which they have attributed the attack to APT-41. We'll talk about that in the next coming slides where most of the victims were uh, from the Star Alliance group. We also looked into the cyber criminal activities where uh, there were multiple, multiple remote administration tools um, developed specifically to hit possibly uh, airline employees and users around uh, that industry sector. Uh, one of them that grabbed some media attention was SNP3 Cryptor, which was first reported in the month of May. Um, we'll talk about that as well. And then when we looked into uh, malicious files impersonating IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association, and the softwares which IATA uses at their backend, one popular software that they use is BSP Link software. So we basically looked for malicious files impersonating these softwares and themes uh, which are primarily used at the back end of it, airport or airline industry, we came across a couple of payloads which we are highlighted on the bottom right, mostly Octopus, Quarter Rat, Luminosity Link Rat, a couple of backdoors and post exploitation tools like Empashel were being spotted uh, from our hunting through our telemetry as well as through open source intelligence uh, toolkit. So we'll talk about more about CETA breach and SNP3 in the upcoming slides. Slide, please, Brian. So on CETA breach, um, so the breach actually hit CETA's PSS, which is the passenger service system, which is responsible for storing and uh, processing of personal information related to the passenger details when they book tickets. And this breach uh, has hit Star Alliance Group and major airlines working in these countries uh, like Singapore, Thai, India, Germany, Hong Kong and many others that led to leakage of millions of data that included uh, name, date of birth, contact information, passport information and others. We saw multiple advertisements in underground forums where actors posted tour on an URL where you pay some minimal amount, you would go, you can actually go pivot through some uh, stolen data, use it for some other purpose, which we believe attackers might be using it. Um, we'll talk more about the actual incident response investigation that Group IB covered in the next slide on how they have actually attributed the attack with uh, APT-41 group. So the investigation led by Group IB was on uh, a South Asian airline where they believe they identified the patient zero on 23rd Feb. And the next day they spotted some lateral movement and the following day they saw data exfiltration happening. And the way how they attributed this particular attack with APT-41 or barium as some competitors call is based on code similarity of certain files that they spotted on the endpoint as well as uh, identifying an SSL certificate that led to discovery of few C2 IPs uh, used in the attack out of which one IP stood out that, uh, that was actually used by APT-41 in a past known attack. So the image on the uh, bottom left is from a batch file that was reported by PyRi in an earlier APT-41 intrusion. Uh, you could see um, the highlighted part in red has a DLL name, which is different from the DLL name mentioned on the uh, bottom right image of a batch file that was spotted in CETA incident response um, breach situation. But other than that, the content in the batch files are almost the same. So it showed that possibly the attackers reused some of their toolkits. They also reused a part of their infrastructure and it was through this that uh, Group IB has attributed uh, the CETA breach to APT-41. 
At Sentinel One, we are still investigating, pivoting through different data sets uh, to understand it better. Uh, we'll come up with some interesting story if we find any unique findings and we'll share it across in the upcoming webinars and watchtower reports. Next slide, please. Yeah, and uh, as part of hunting uh, against airline industry, we also looked into the cyber criminal side of toolkits. One thing that uh, stood out was the Split 3 crypto uh, builder toolkit, which was first reported in the month of May. Uh, um, so we believe that it was possibly used as a crypto as a service module or model to distribute different malwares. The reason being that the final payloads that we identified were custom rats like Agent Tesla, Revenge Rat, and few others. It wasn't very difficult for us to hunt down this particular builder tool because they used a hard-coded SNP3 string in their PDB path. So we wrote a VirusTotal RetroHunt rule to find uh, the builder tool from VirusTotal. And on analysis, we were able to understand that the builder tool offers three options of encrypting or encoding its uh, malicious scripts in it, just base64, gzip, and URL encode, which are not really sophisticated, to be very honest. But what, the reason why we feel that this particular crypto tool was used against airline industry is that the file names associated with the malicious BBS script used in the skill chain had a lot of uh, interesting themes and words related to airline or uh, flights, you know, GCSA or uh, flight routing details and so forth. So basically all the file names that we identified had some kind of relation with airline or airline industry itself directly. And speaking of kill chain, uh, it is believed that they arrived through an email and dropped a malicious BBS file with any one of these interesting file names, which would later decode first stager uh, partial script. Following that, they would decode to the second stager, connect to one of the domains. Uh, we spotted PageBin was widely used. And during our hunting, we spotted some active C2s there. And the other domains that they used was of uh, top four top. Uh, they would check if the files are being executed in a virtual environment or not, only if the files are not executed inside a virtual environment, they would proceed. And uh, generally once the script is done compiling the run P code, they would inject uh, basically PowerShell helps in injecting the remote administration tool into the uh, virtual memory of a legitimate process running in the user's machine. Uh, at uh, the bottom left part, you could see install util was the victim process identified in one of the campaigns into which uh, process following was done and the malicious rat was injected through and executed from there. They were using uh, another couple of uh, victim process as well during their entire campaign. Uh, so we spotted them as well. We updated our rule sets and we performed a retro hunt throughout our telemetry and shared the findings in our watchtower report last month. Uh, yeah, that's great, Roger. Actually, I mean, I have a comment and a question. My comment is, I, I love to see a, that is a great example of what I was talking about earlier when it comes to identifying static parameters versus dynamic uh, atomic IOCs that change quickly. Um, we're able to identify, you know, via the usage of the SNP three, we're able to identify a, a single parameter that stays the same throughout the entire campaign that we can hunt for. So we can hunt for a hash and really maybe 
if that exact hash is used again, we might get lucky. But by identifying, by doing that full kill chain analysis and that full reverse engineering, we're able to identify a single element to hunt for that stays the same throughout the entire campaign. And that gives us so much more value from a threat hunting perspective. So that's a great example of what I was talking about earlier. Um, yep. Now, the other thing, the question I had, I think is super interesting. I mean, the, the scope of this attack is monumental. All, you know, all Star Alliance uh, airlines being targeted, you know, the biggest ones. Uh, I, I guess my question is this. APT-41 linked to Chinese intelligence operations um, targeting an airline industry. Why? why? Why would an air national spy agency be invest this much time and effort and work into targeting our global airlines? A lot of companies come to me when I tell them they may be targeted by APT and they say, why would APT, why would a spy agency want my information? So I guess I'm pointing that question at you. Why would this Chinese intelligence organization want airline information? Uh, that's a good question, Brian. So uh, it's not always that the APT groups will go behind the intellectual properties of specific government or organizations. Sometimes human intelligence also gives key value for their uh, upcoming attacks in future. For example, like when they targeted airlines uh, industry through breaching CETA or CETA PSS, they could also get more information from IATA or IACA, which is the International Air Carrier Association. And these organizations kind of conduct uh, some international conferences every year uh, at different locations where diplomats, government officials, some VIPs, or even leaders would take part discussing on um, you know, global standards of airlines, safety, security, efficiency, and sustainability. And if an attacker gains information on who is traveling, where are they traveling, and around what days are they traveling, they could combine this kind of leaked data along with some open source intelligence and some media news on what is happening with so-and-so high profile users, where are they traveling, what are they going to speak on, what is the agenda of a conference where they are attending and so forth. They could get those vital information as, you know, they can, they could even blackmail at some point of time, they could, uh, you know, carefully craft a spear phishing email with a very recent CV or a zero day and send out an email to uh, get into the act. Uh, get into their computers, laterally move and get as much information as possible as well in a later point of time. So basically, these kind of breaches would serve as a first stager for a more sophisticated attack at some other point of time in future. And uh, you're right, though. I mean, you know, that's that's exactly right. I, I mean, I assume airline industries, if, if an intelligence agency in China or wherever has a list of targets, high value targets, it could be a diplomat. It could be a, sun, a science, nuclear scientist. It could be um, you know, people holding top secret clearances. And if they're able to track where they're going, when they're going there, this is going to be a, a vital information for an intelligence organization that may have boots on the ground, maybe want to observe movements of people. Uh, so, right. And, it, and really, if you take a step back and combine this with the big OPM attack of 2015, where China, again, was able to hack into the, the, the data and, and, and take the entire database of anybody that's ever held a security clearance within the United States. I, I happen to have been in that, um, as well as people from military, from, from any organization dealing in top secret information. They do a deep dive personnel background 
uh, to see, can this person be blackmailed? Can this person, does this person have anything suspicious in their past? So basically, you know, they, they received all of that research to know how to blackmail or, or approach high value targets with high level security clearances throughout the United States. So they already have a massive list of targets. Combine that with the ability to track where they're going, when they're going, when they'll be places. You're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a treasure trove and it's really concerning from an intelligence perspective, I would think. Um, we're at an hour. And Naranjan, I know you, we, we wanted to talk about Citrix. Um, you know what, Tiffany, is it okay? I mean, maybe everybody feel free to drop off if it's tight for time. Could we, well, we're gonna take just a few more minutes, Naranjan, if you could quickly go through this, uh, this one as well, and then we'll sign off for the webinar. Sure. So um, the next one is on um, Royal Road Weaponizer tool that was used to build malicious RTF files that has um, CB 2017-11882 exploit in it. And uh, the basic trend that we saw in this infection chains is that they would drop the object 8.t, which is the encoded uh, shell code, which would further decrypt uh, to, uh, to, a, to a clean legitimate executable and a malicious DLL file. And the malicious DLL file happens to be the remote administration tool, which gets sideloaded at a later point of time. So this particular campaign or this particular um, trend of uh, behaviors was observed, used by multiple APT groups from 2017. Uh, to the bottom left are some of the final payloads that we observed. Um, they used this series of uh, DLL names that you see in the second box. Uh, that's just a small set, subset of the entire collection that we had. And uh, then uh, speaking of the industry sectors targeted by this particular campaign, we spotted lot of government hits uh, and some oil media shipping companies being hit as well. Basically this, this entire campaign primarily focused on South Asian uh, hosts and they were not targeting any Middle East or um, US region. Um, so as time progressed, we started seeing the shellcode file name getting changed from 8.t to 5.t and the most recent shellcode name was identified as e.o. Um, so that's about uh, Royal Road Weaponizer tool that was used both in cybercrime by uh, nation state attacks, uh, attackers and possibly by some cyber criminal groups as well. We can move to the next topic, Brian. So this was pretty interesting where we saw attackers being very choosy on, on targeting specific organizations that had Citrix entity installed in their environment. So uh, we had, we observed two cases. Uh, in one case where customers have only had detect only settings enabled at their environment, we spotted this timeline of kill chain and uh, on environments where customers have enabled protect uh, feature, the threat was completely blocked at a very initial stage itself. What is so unusual or specific about this particular attack group was the spawner process cmstart.exe, which was never seen in many other attacks in the most recent times. So this particular process is related to the uh, Citrix Zenzap Zen Zen server that led to multiple events and you could see multiple PowerShell scripts also being uh, spawned. There was also lateral movement that we saw happening, but the final payload identified was Empire Shell or Cobalt Strike. We didn't see any ransomware or any other devastating tool in the skill chain yet, 
we have updated our rules as we say all the time and we are constantly monitoring this particular uh, citrix related campaigns right now awesome okay well thank you guys uh you know we again we have limited time within watchtower we hunted for a, a a lot more than just this but these are three pretty major events between dark side between a massive campaign hitting airlines and between this the citrix campaign using the railroad weaponizer um three very significant events throughout the month uh, of, of may reported on in june and um we look forward you know we continually are observing the threat landscape identifying changes and launching uh new hunts for our clients so i will say thank you sorry for going over about five minutes uh, hopefully everybody found it worthwhile. Thank you for your time and have a great rest of your day.